choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other things, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Godspeed, John Glenn. Roger, zero G, and I feel fine. Can I feel out? Okay, I'm out. How does it feel for the United States to be the new record holder? At last, huh? In that baby light, there's no doubt about it. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Houston, uh, Tranquility Base here. The Eagle has landed. That's one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind. Hello and welcome. This is Michael Annis and you're listening to episode number 339 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Apollo 15, The Launch. The launch of an Apollo spacecraft was quite an event. We had a million people at the launch site during during our launch. Uh, And so you think this is a momentous occasion. It's a fantastic thing. Uh, It's like getting ready for a big sports event or something. You know, football, you're all pumped up on Saturday morning before you go play football. Uh, We weren't. Uh, It was quite different. Uh, We knew all those people were out there. We We knew we were starting on a rather epic voyage, but we had been through it in simulation so many times that it was just kind of like another day. I was so glued to watching the instruments to make sure that we were on the right trajectory that I had, I couldn't think of anything else. Uh, it was all right there in front of me, and I focused on that, concentrated on it, went through it just like I did in simulation, and we launched. It was easy. The words of Al Warden, Command Module Pilot, Apollo 15. Launch day began early. Here's how Lunar Module Pilot Jim Irwin remembered it. They began about 4.30 in the morning, Deke Slate and the boss of all the astronauts came to our little sleeping quarters at the Kennedy Space Center. He knocked on the door, pushed it open, leaned his head in, he said, okay guys, you ready to go to the moon today? Had a great sense of humor. But I think he wasted on us because it was too early in the morning. He said we were ready. And he knew we were ready because he watched his train for those five years. About 4.30 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time on July 26th, Inside the third-floor windowless crew quarters at the Cape, the astronauts of Apollo 15 were woken by Deke Slayton. The crew had slept well. They walked a hundred feet down the hall to the medical facility, where they were given a brief physical. They were naked except for their bathrobes, so they dropped them off for the abbreviated examination. The medical people had been watching them every day. They wanted to be certain the astronauts had not developed colds or infections or anything else. Dr. Jack Teagan checked them out very matter-of-factly, very concentrated with no small talk. Everything was simplified to keep things moving on. After being declared in excellent physical condition, the astronauts went to the dining room for breakfast. Then they took us to the mess hall and they fed us a big breakfast. We ate a lot, we knew it would be the last solid food we would have for 12 days. In addition to the astronauts at breakfast, there was also the support crew, the three backup guys, and Deke Slayton, who always seemed to be there. They had the traditional breakfast of steak and eggs. Then everyone shook their hand and said goodbye. Then it was off to 
the suit room. Then they took us to the suit room. We in our fancy space suit. We refer to the suit as the moon cocoon. Because that's what it is. A shell. Not a thin shell, but a thick shell that will protect us from the harsh environment of space. And inside it contain everything we need for life. And they tested that cocoon to make sure it was perfect. In the suit room, everything had a special clarity. It was a clean room with a surgical atmosphere. The staff wore white garments and white hats, and there were testing devices along the wall that would be used to check the pressure and integrity of their suits. When the crew arrived, they stripped and were checked over again. Then they applied two biomedical sensors on the side of their chest and two on the front to measure respiration and heart rate. They fastened a signal conditioner package around their waist for the headset and microphones inside their helmet and then attached the urine collection devices. On top of this, the astronauts donned a white long john type cotton underwear called a constant wear garment, which like every piece of clothing and every other item aboard was fireproof to prevent a repeat of the Apollo 1 tragedy. Then came the white outer suit, the pressure garment assembly, or PGA, which consisted of a neoprene-coated nylon inner layer coverall which could be pressurized to maintain the body at the proper oxygen pressure. On top of the coverall came a multi-layered lightweight outer garment coated with beta cloth to protect against the impact of micrometeoroids. The pressure garment assembly was not an easy garment to get into. After stepping into the legs of the suit, they had molded socks attached, over which yellow protective boots were placed until they reached the launch pad. The bottom portion of a zipper extending around the waist, up the chest, and behind the neck was closed. They were then helped to ease their arms into the sleeves and their heads through the metal neck ring to which their helmets would be attached. The biosensors were plugged into outlets in the suit. They then donned brown and white cloth hats, which bore some resemblance to the leather helmet pilots wore in open cockpits, often called Snoopy hats. Snoopy the cartoon dog had been chosen to represent superior workmanship in NASA's manned flight awareness program. Each hat contained two earpieces and two microphones near the chin piece and was also connected to the bio harness. Finally, molded gloves and a polycarbonate plastic bubble-like helmet were connected to the suit and locked in place. They were then hooked up to a test stand where their suits were pressurized to make sure there were no leaks and that all the biosensors were working and that their medical readouts were fine. The astronauts were now breathing 100% oxygen. They had to pre-breathe this pure oxygen for at least three hours before launch in order to expel all the excess nitrogen in their bloodstreams so they would not get the bends when they started to ascend. 
As a precaution, each astronaut had a backup suit in case a fault was detected at any stage throughout this lengthy procedure. During the mission, the suits would be pressurized only while they were performing tasks outside the spacecraft or if Apollo's cabin suddenly lost pressure. After this long suit integrity check, they were at last able to sit down in a comfortable leather couch while they waited for permission to go out to the launch pad. This was a brief moment of rest after the hard work of suiting up. The astronauts took a little nap. Then, just before dawn, the call came in from the launch center saying that everything looked good for an on-time launch. Each astronaut grabbed a portable ventilator, headed along the hallway to the elevator, and descended to where a transport van awaited them. The hallway was crowded with well-wishers from the flight crew quarters, all waving goodbye and wishing them good luck. With helmets on, they could not hear the well-wishers. They only heard the sound of their own breathing. And in those bulky spacesuits, that hallway felt pretty narrow. Al Worden was excited and flashed a quick V for victory sign to the cameras. As he came out of the doorway of the building and over to the van, he had a nice surprise. Some of his family were there, along with Deke Slayton. Worden's father was there, and they exchanged grins. The old man held out his hand, but Worden didn't even have time to break step. They were on such a tight schedule. But he did grasp his father's outstretched hand as he passed. Families were not usually allowed to stand there, but Deke had somehow worked it out for them. If public interest in Apollo was trailing off, it wasn't apparent this day. Tens of thousands of people were gathered inside the Space Center perimeter, including more than 5,000 specially invited guests. Outside the center, the press reported that about one million people had gathered to see the launch, and the nearest vacant hotel room was more than 50 miles away. The astronauts boarded the bus bound for Pad A at Launch Complex 39. And they took us down, and they put us in the van, and they drove us very slowly to the launch pad. As we drove out, it was very slow, and it was very quiet. No one was saying anything. I was surprised because we made that drive several times before, and it was always a lot of light conversation. That morning, not a word was said. And I realized these folks were thinking a lot. I realized I was thinking a lot, thinking about what we hoped would happen in just a few hours. But not only was I thinking ahead for the launch, but my thoughts drifted to the past because it reminded it was almost exactly 10 years before that I was involved in that serious accident. When the doctors had said earlier, we don't think you'll ever be able to fly again. Here I am driving out for a flight to the moon. So I knew the Lord had really answered my prayer. Well, there are many thoughts that go through our mind as we make our way slowly out to the launch pad. Through the windows of the bus, the astronauts could see the crowds of people lining their route. Dawn broke to reveal a bright morning with a few scattered clouds and surface winds of about 10 miles per hour. Conditions were perfect for launch, scheduled to take place at 9.34 a.m. They had a police escort, and there was a backup bus following them just in case the bus they were in broke down for any reason. 
They drove down the highway, past the vertical assembly building, and on to launch control, where they stopped, and Deke Slayton got out and made his final farewell, telling them to have a good mission. The look in his eye said how much he wished he could be in their shoes right now. Now only the suit technicians remained in the bus with the astronauts. The bus drove up the ramp by the launch pad and parked next to the elevator. Up close, the Saturn V looked amazing. It gleamed in the morning sunshine. The weather was humid, which was not unusual for a Florida summer. The Saturn V had been filled the night before with super cold liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen and some of that deep chill had spread through the rocket walls to the outside. The humidity in the air stuck to the skin of the rocket and froze, so there was ice everywhere. The rocket was huffing as puffs of vapor vented from it. The tanks were continually topped off. The Saturn V reminded Al Warden of a tethered animal pawing at the ground, ready to run. It no longer seemed like a large chunk of metal. It appeared to fume with frustration, ready to be unleashed, unrestrained. Then the crew boarded the elevator and rode to the top. But finally we arrived there, then they take us out, and they put us in the elevator, it takes us slowly to the top of the top. The astronauts got out of the elevator, crossed the swing arm, and took a look all the way down. It was hard to believe that gigantic rocket could ever get off the ground. Then they went into the white room that surrounded the command module, and crew insertion began. He takes over to the spacecraft very slowly. Everything's slow on the way to launch, but no one wants to make a mistake. We appreciate that. We get over to the spacecraft, and then we have a lot of help to get in because we're so bumpy and clumsy in the big space suit. There are many men on the outside, but there are two on the inside, and they simply guide us into the right position. And they're careful that we don't hit a switch or a circuit breaker, that'd be disastrous. When they get us in that right position, they attach all the equipment to our spacesuit, with the oxygen, the electrical, then with the seatbelt, with the shoulder arms, and they pull it down very tightly because it wants absolutely anchored to the couch, the accelerations and liftoff. Gunter Vent was ready and waiting, and Warden's backup, Vance Brand, was there too. He had been busy setting up all the switches in the command module that needed to be set before launch. The astronauts would not be able to reach them once they were strapped into position. Each crewman was shoehorned in the command module, one at a time. First, Scott, then Irwin, and last, Warden. The suit techs helped them route the hoses so they were connected with the oxygen in the command module. They saw that the crew got onto the couches properly, and they cinched the straps, seat belts, and shoulder harnesses. The electrical connections were made so they could talk to launch control at the Cape and mission control in Houston. Gunter ran the process like clockwork, and soon it was time for the technicians to close the hatch. And once our two helpers got the three of us tied and very tightly, they patted us on the shoulder, then they quickly hopped out, almost like afraid you might get caught up. Then they closed the hatch and went bang like a dungeon door. And we realized at that moment this was it. They were closing the door for the last time. And it was too late now to knock on the door and say, fellas, I changed my mind. I'd like to get out. 
But too late for that. But I think you know we've never changed our mind because we've missed almost a lifetime getting ready for this journey. So they close the door and it gets very quiet as the anticipation continues to build. The last face they saw was Gunter's, smiling and waving an enormous crescent wrench. Then the heavy hatch closed with a deep thunk. To Irwin, it clanged like a dungeon door. The reality of the situation hit him like a ton of bricks. He was cut off from the world, committed. This was the moment he had been waiting for. It wouldn't be long now. For the next two hours, they would sit on top of this massive explosive device running through a series of system checks with launch control. This is Kennedy Launch Control, T-minus one hour, 21 minutes and counting. All aspects of the countdown still go for Apollo 15, still aiming toward our planned T-0 and liftoff at 9.34 a.m. Eastern Daylight Time. The administrator of the National Aeronautics and Space Administration, Dr. James Fletcher, has just arrived here in firing room one, the control room for this launch. He's being briefed by the deputy administrator, Dr. George Lowe, and is being told that the countdown is still going excellently, as it has since it picked up late last evening. The spacecraft commander, Dave Scott, aboard the spacecraft with his two comrades at the 320-foot level at the pad. Scott now working on some command and guidance checks, working with spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin and the spacecraft checkout team. Here in the firing room, under the direction of test supervisor Jim Harrington and the launch vehicle test conductor Norm Carlson, the launch team making some final telemetry checks of the status uh, of the tracking telemetry in the three stages and instrument, instrument unit of the Saturn V launch vehicle. Still counting, still go. Weather report excellent for a launch attempt, a beautiful morning for a flight to the moon. One hour, 19 minutes, 45 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. This is Kennedy Launch Control, T-minus 61 minutes and counting. T-minus 61, the countdown still proceeding very satisfactorily. Now just a little more than an hour away from our planned liftoff here on the Apollo 15 mission. Astronaut Dave Scott, who will be making his third space flight, uh, is uh, still working with the spacecraft test conductor in the spacecraft cabin at the 320-foot level at the pad, working with spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin back at the control room. We have completed our final uh, guidance alignment checks of the spacecraft systems, and we're now making some, bio, uh, some final uh, checks of the entry monitoring system, uh, the system that would help guide the spacecraft back in on a, on a re-entry from a trip uh, from the trip from the moon and also, of course, if there was an emergency condition where the spacecraft had to come back in. Skip Chauvin has just advised the astronauts that the swing arm, which is now still attached to the spacecraft, probably will be coming back in about seven minutes from this time. The swing arm is moved to a position about six feet away from the spacecraft so that if there was an emergency condition where the astronauts needed to egress the spacecraft in a hurry, that swing arm could be brought back in in a matter of seconds so that the astronauts could get out. At the five-minute mark in the countdown, the swing arm is retracted to its fully uh, retracted position at the pad. Here in the Launch Control Center, our telemetry calibration checks are still in progress. We'll uh, be making some checks of the Range Safety Commander suck system aboard the vehicle, the system that, that would be used to destroy the vehicle after an abort uh, sequence had occurred and the astronauts uh, had escaped uh, from the vehicle in trouble. 
That's our status. All is gold. 59 minutes, 10 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. This is Kennedy Launch Control. Swing arm is now moving back from the spacecraft uh, on command right at the 53-minute mark. It'll be moved some six feet away from the spacecraft and remain in that standby condition for contingency purposes uh, through the remainder of the countdown until at five minutes it is fully retracted. The astronauts, of course, were alerted that this event would occur because they do feel a slight jolt as the swing arm and the white room attached to its tip is pulled away. The astronauts can still continuing their final checks aboard the spacecraft and the crew here in firing room one at the launch control center here, complex 39, uh, still monitoring the status of the propellants on board the vehicle. We loaded uh, more than three quarters of a million gallons of liquid oxygen, liquid hydrogen aboard the Saturn V this morning uh, from the time the countdown uh, picked up uh, late last evening. A power transfer test, one of our key tests over the last hour or so in the countdown, has been successfully accomplished uh, here in the firing room. Uh, we have switched uh, from external power to the internal batteries on board the three stages and instrument unit of the Saturn V to assure that they are operating properly. To conserve those batteries on board, we've now returned to external power. We will finally switch internal with the rocket at the 50-second mark in the count. The countdown has been going very well. In fact, we're about 10 minutes ahead on events both concerned with the spacecraft and the launch vehicle. We're now 51 minutes, 25 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. The astronauts did feel a little nudge as the giant access arm from which they had walked before climbing into the spacecraft was retracted. Then, strong sunlight suddenly poured through the small porthole of the spacecraft's central window, which until that moment had been covered by the access arm. This is Kennedy Launch Control, T-minus 46 minutes and counting. T-minus 46 minutes and counting. We are proceeding satisfactorily, aiming toward our planned liftoff here for Apollo 15. The Apollo 15 astronauts crew standing by in the spacecraft at this time. They'll have uh, quite a bit more work before we reach our T-zero, but uh, they're standing by at this point. They've completed their guidance and alignment checks and are waiting uh, as uh, certain key launch vehicle checks are taking place at this time. We have just completed a check of the Digital Range Safety Command Destruct System. These are the destruct packages aboard the three stages of the Saturn V that would be activated if the vehicle uh, was flying off course and was a danger to personnel below. Of course, before the destruct system would be activated, the abort sequence would take place and the astronaut crew and their spacecraft would be separated from the launch vehicle. Our weather is go in all aspects of the countdown, go. 44 minutes, 57 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. At this stage of the countdown, there is, of course, concern about the functioning of the launch vehicle abort system, just in case there is an emergency. This is how the system was supposed to work. Each stage of the Saturn V launch vehicle had shaped explosive charges attached to its outer surface, which in the event of an abort, ruptured the fuel and oxidizer tanks. This rupturing served to disperse their contents into the atmosphere rather than allow them to impact the Earth with dangerous loads still on board. 
The charge for the S1C first stage would cut a longitudinal breach in the fuel tank on the opposite side of the vehicle from the oxidizer tank so as to minimize their mixing during dispersion. Charges for the S2 second stage cut a 9-meter longitudinal opening in the hydrogen fuel tank and a series of lateral 4-meter ruptures in the liquid oxygen tank. Those for the S4B third stage made two parallel 6-meter openings in the fuel tank and a 1.2-meter diameter hole in the liquid oxygen tank. These charges were fired only after the command module had separated from the launch vehicle. During a normal ascent, the destruct system was shut down soon after the launch escape tower was jettisoned, about three and a half minutes into the flight. This is Kennedy Launch Control at T minus 40 minutes, so 54 seconds and counting. Still proceeding very well at this time, aiming toward our plan T0 at 9.34 a.m. The astronauts uh, will be busy again shortly in the spacecraft, particularly Command Module Pilot Al Worden as he proceeds uh, to go through the sequence of pressurizing uh, the reaction control system of the spacecraft. Uh, this is primarily concerned with those four uh, quadrants of 100-pound thrust uh, rockets on the side of the service module. We pressurized that system uh, before launch, and Al Worden reads off uh, the, the status of the overall system so that spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin and the crew uh, back in the spacecraft control center can determine that that system is go for launch. Of course, the reaction control system uh, used extensively on the flight to and from the moon for small refinements on trajectory. Here in uh, firing room one, uh, we go for the final portion of the count. We have a clearance from the range uh, to launch, and our countdown is continuing. The countdown has been going excellently since it picked up at 11.34 p.m. last evening following a 9-hour, 34-minute built-in hold. Since that time, a major portion of the count was devoted to the propellant loading of the Saturn V launch vehicle, bringing aboard liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen, the so-called cryogenic propellant, aboard the three stages of the vehicle. Interestingly enough, early countdowns did not have built-in holds. However, the countdown, even in the early years of rocketry, was not just a count ticking down toward launch. It specified when various things happened during pre-launch. During early development, operational missiles suffered inevitable delays due to minor snags cropping up, despite their supposedly predictable schedules. While difficulties were ironed out, the count had to be paused, holding up other events. By building pauses into the count, at carefully chosen times, engineers could use this time to appraise problems and deal with them appropriately when this would not cause trouble. A simple way to implement such a pause was to stop the clock. The built-in hold became firmly established in the launch event scheduled during the Gemini program when it was important that launches of the spacecraft and their rendezvous target vehicles, the Agenas, were carefully choreographed and had to be on time. Kennedy Launch Control, T-minus 20 minutes, 56 seconds, and counting all aspects of the count are still goal, still aiming toward our plan T-0 at the appointed time of 9.34 a.m. Astronaut Al Worden, the command module pilot in the middle seat, 
uh, has completed his checks of the pressurization system for the reaction controls of the Apollo spacecraft, and all is still going well. Here in the launch control center, the crew has started a sequence to chill down the upper two stages of the Saturn V uh, because of the extremely low temperatures of the liquid oxygen and liquid hydrogen involved in the propellant system, and uh, it, it is necessary to condition the engine chambers in both the second and third stages so that they will be at a lower temperature when the propellants are introduced at ignition time during the powered phase of the flight. We'll have more than 11 minutes of powered flight in the first phase of the mission uh, before the uh, spacecraft, the Apollo spacecraft, is placed into a parking orbit from 90 nautical miles high, still attached to the third stage. The second burn of that third stage of the Saturn V uh, will place the uh, spacecraft on its proper translunar uh, trajectory. Our status, 19 minutes, 40 seconds and counting. All aspects still go. This is Kennedy Launch Control. This is Kennedy Launch Control. 16-minute mark has just been passed. We're at 15 minutes, 53 seconds and counting. The astronaut crew standing by for some important functions that will be coming up in a minute or so as the Apollo spacecraft goes on full internal power on the fuel cells on board. Up to this time in the countdown, an external power source also has been applied to conserve those fuel cells. The external power source is removed. The astronauts will take a look at the status of their power system on board and report it back to the spacecraft control center. Both uh, the astronauts also will arm their hand controllers on board the spacecraft, and we will be ready to proceed to also place the emergency detection system on its automatic mode. Our countdown is still proceeding very satisfactorily as we come up on the 15-minute mark. The flight azimuth is the same. About five minutes ago, there was an update given to the spacecraft computer. No changes were required because our countdown is right on time. 14 minutes, 53 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. The crew was now checking the final status of the electrical system and the setup of the flight director attitude indicator. This instrument, often called the 8-ball, is similar to the ball-style artificial horizon found on many aircraft and likewise allows determination of the spacecraft's attitude. This is Kennedy Launch Control, T-minus, 10 minutes, 55 seconds and counting. Countdown still running smoothly as astronaut Dave Scott on board the spacecraft checks out a key abort circuit. This is a special communication system with only about three or four people on it. These are the people who could recommend an abort to the spacecraft commander if required. These people include the launch operations manager, Paul Donnelly, the uh, spacecraft communicator here in the control center, astronaut Vance Brand, spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin, and Houston flight director Jerry Griffin. We've checked out this special uh, communication system, and uh, Dave Scott confirms that all is well. The countdown proceeding, uh, Jim Irwin now reading out some checks on the status of the fuel cells as we continue to go. We'll go on an automatic sequence here in the countdown, starting at the three-minute, seven-second mark in the count. From that time down, uh, we will be automatic uh, with the countdown driven by the computer. This will wind up with ignition of those five engines in the first stage at the 8.9-second mark in the countdown. The engines will build up to their full thrust. 
the computer will make a determination that we have 90% thrust in all five engines, and that will be the signal for commit or to release the vehicle. Our countdown is still proceeding, 9 minutes, 33 seconds and counting. This is Kennedy Launch Control. <coughs> the decision to uh, let this monster, 36-story tall rocket, weighing over 6 million pounds, I guess on its uh, six and a half million pounds, Saturn V, the decision to let those hooks go at its base when it's, all, all those engines are thrusting is taken by a computer. Uh, things happen so quickly then that the computer is the only piece of machinery that is trustworthy to make those decisions in that amount of time. So the final decision is, although it can be overridden by man, is really made by a machine, which demonstrates the complexity of many of the things that are going on here. Do we, do we have a moment I can explain the sequence of that? I just sure. talked to, to a man about it because I had a question. The impulse to fire the engines is given at 8.9 seconds before the liftoff. The center engine is fired first, and then two outer engines and two more outer engines, and all, all of them begin to fire within about a second or a little more. And then during the next four seconds, they're watching pressures build up so that we're now about four seconds from liftoff. They have pressure sensors to determine whether the engines are up to full thrust. And unless all five engines are running at 90% of thrust, they will automatically shut down. Or the launch controller, if he sees something else going wrong, or if he can see a direct readout, he'll shut them all down and, uh, and then try to find out what's wrong. But in a period of less than nine seconds, they make uh, tremendously complex uh, decisions to lift off. Now we're going to go to mission control and uh, Jack King. Five minutes, 55 seconds and counting. Uh, we're still go. Just uh, we're about to come up with some status checks now to determine the final status. In the meantime, uh, the lunar module test conductor, Fritz Wydeck, has come in over the circuit and informed the spacecraft commander, Dave Scott, that lunar module Falcon and the rover are go. Dave Scott uh, thanked him for this and uh, then also received a report from spacecraft test conductor Skip Chauvin that the command ship, which will be have the call, call sign Endeavor, also is go. We've just completed our status reports and the launch operations manager Paul Donnelly, the launch director Walt Kaplan, and the mission director Chet Lee all have given their goals. We're standing by for the swing arm to retract to its full fallback position. It's moving now as we approach the five-minute mark in the count. Coming up on the five-minute mark. Mark, T-minus, five minutes and counting. We're going Apollo 15. This is Kennedy Launch Control. And so the access arms that they have to that rocket are now moving back. And uh, in about two minutes, a little bit less, the automatic sequence of the firing command will begin. All of this immensely complicated work going on down here by computers that were unimaginable 21 years ago. And it was 21 years ago this week that they had the first rocket fired from this part of the world, from this installation. It was a very small event. It was a German V-2. Mm -hmm. The launch tower was a painter's ladder. And the launch pad was an 11-foot thick concrete chunk. Uh, there was a lighthouse here, which was the only thing they had to w observe it from. But it went off, and it went 200 miles downrange, and somebody said, you know, maybe there's a future in that. 
Second, and we come now to this enormous complex of men and machines and fuel and everything else that we find here at Cape Kennedy now. And in our three minutes and 52 seconds, uh, John C., Apollo 15, go. And now, the final three and one half minutes before launch, uninterrupted. Launch control. We've just passed three minutes, 30 second mark in the count. The terminal sequencer has been armed and we are go. Launch operations manager Paul Donnelly just wished the crew good luck and guard speed and received an expression of thanks from all three crew members. We'll be coming up shortly on the automatic sequence. Three minutes, 10 seconds. Firing command enable. Firing command on. We have the firing command. We're now on the automatic sequence. And the tanks in the three stages of the Saturn V that contain those propellants will begin to pressurize. The countdown is still proceeding, and we're at now two, two minutes, 50 seconds, and counting. We understand there's an estimate that there are more than a million people in the area here to view the launch. The traffic has been heavy since 2 o'clock this morning. The beaches are packed and the roads are packed. Two minutes, 35 seconds and counting. We're monitoring our status board here in firing room one. Our, our ready lights are on, concerned with spacecraft, emergency detection system, instrument units. Our preparations are complete and the automatic sequence is continuing. Two minutes, 20 seconds and counting. We now have second phase liquid oxygen and third phase liquid oxygen supplies uh, pressurized as the countdown continues. Coming up from the two-minute mark, we'll be standing by for the cue ball cover to be retracted shortly atop the Saturn V vehicle. Mark, T minus two minutes, T minus two minutes and counting, still going well. Propellant stable on board the vehicle. The crew here in the firing room monitoring uh, more than 300 red line values, watching temperatures and pressures to ensure they do not go above nominal. In the case that it did, uh, any one of these uh, key people could call in to hold the countdown. One minute at 36 seconds and counting, still going well. The pressurization sequence is still continuing in the vehicle. Now 90 seconds away from liftoff, all still going well. We'll go on internal power with the vehicle at the 50-second mark in the count. We now get indications from our status board that all is still going well, and the third stage is now completely pressurized. Coming up shortly on the one-minute mark, we're now 70 seconds and counting. Second-stage tanks are pressurized as our countdown continues. T-minus 60 seconds and counting on Apollo 15. The astronauts are go, launch vehicle, and spacecraft components all go as our countdown proceeds. Now 50 seconds, we have the power transfer. The vehicle now on the battery power in the vehicle, and all is still going well. Little module pilot Jim Irwin making some final checks. Now passing the 40-second mark, spacecraft commander Dave Scott now has made his final check, that is aligning the guidance system. 30 seconds and counting. The guidance system will go internal at the 17-second mark. Now 25 seconds. We have complete clearance to launch. We are go. 20. 15 seconds. Guidance internal. 15, 12, 11, 10, 9, 8. Ignition sequence start. Engines on. 5, 4, 3, 2.
Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host. Wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 339 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Apollo 15, The Launch. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. Our next episode is scheduled to be released in two weeks on June 4th. If you're looking for old episodes of the podcast, the first 168 are available on the Archive podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. It should be available on most podcatchers. Okay, had a few afterthoughts on this week's episode. I really love launch day. The excitement, the anticipation, the promise of what is about to come. I just love it. I find myself having an emotional experience about a launch that occurred nearly 50 years ago. I guess it's because of the rarity and, of course, the destination of the mission. Remember, only two more of these moon mission Saturn V flights are left. I just try to enjoy every minute of it. Now, I do want to apologize for the audio quality of the Jack King clips. The first set of clips came from the Internet Archive. Now, these were uploaded by John Stoll. That that is uh, NASA's audio and video archivist. But unfortunately, Jack King really sounded muffled in these clips. I tried to improve them as much as I could, but... You know, I really wasn't very happy with how they came out. The later Jack King clips at around T-minus six minutes were from NBC News. Now, these sounded better, but they didn't begin until T-minus six minutes, so they don't exist for the earlier part of the countdown. I found in general, not very much TV news coverage of Apollo 15 has survived the past 49 years. I really would have liked to have had some of the countdown with Cronkite, since he is my favorite, but I just couldn't find it. I did find some Uncle Walter after the launch, but it was still nice to have at least found NBC's John Chancellor. I hope you enjoyed the astronaut pre-launch activities. I spent a good bit of time on this because I wanted to present their perspective. I once again apologize about Jim Irwin's audio quality. I just have to work with what I can find, I guess. A lot of interesting things happened during pre-launch. Did you find it interesting that the crew had to pre-breathe pure oxygen to get all the nitrogen out of their bloodstream so they wouldn't get the bends during ascent. Another thing that really impressed me, or maybe concerned me, was the confinement. If you have any tendency toward claustrophobia, then becoming an astronaut is probably not a good career choice. Imagine being put into that suit with the fishbowl helmet, and you are stuck there for hours. It's difficult to even scratch your face if you get an itch. But what really brought it home was Jim Irwin's description of the hatch closing on the command module and knowing that he was committed. There was no way he could change his mind now. 
And of course, he was shoehorned in there with the bulky suit. Now, I'm just saying that if I thought about it for a while, if I was sitting there in that suit, realizing I was going to be confined for a couple weeks, you know, I might have an issue with that. I guess an uh, astronaut may not be my chosen profession. <laughs> okay, the last thing I want to mention, it does not have anything to do with this episode, but it's pretty important to me. On May 27th, SpaceX is scheduled to launch two astronauts to the International Space Station. This will be the first time American astronauts have been launched in an American spacecraft from the United States since 2011 when the space shuttle program was retired. If all goes well, this will be the final test mission for SpaceX before NASA begins using its spacecraft for regular rotational flights to the space station. The hardware will, of course, be the Falcon 9 booster and the Dragon capsule. Now, you can count on it that I am going to be watching this launch with extreme interest, and I want to wish SpaceX Godspeed. Okay, if you are enjoying the podcast without commercial interruption and are financially able, and I want to stress that only if you are financially able, please consider supporting the podcast. For the past seven years, we have been entirely listener-supported. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange Donate button or the Patreon link. Over the last fortnight, we had several new contributions, and I would like to thank Matthew F. from Tennessee, who sent in another donation and moved to the Voyager level. Per H. from Norway donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. John H. from Michigan donated at the Mercury level. Christopher L. from Australia donated at the Mercury level and earned a shooting star emoji. Eric D. pledged on Patreon at the Apollo level. Muriel L. increased her pledge on Patreon to the Gemini level. Bob G. from North Carolina pledged on Patreon at the Vostok level. And FreeHollowBooks.com donated near the Sputnik level and earned a satellite emoji. Our total Patreon donors have reached 247. Our goal is to reach 300 by the end of the year. Our total donors for 2020 have reached 336 with a goal of reaching 500 by the end of the year. Now here's Mrs. SRH with this episode's donor giveaway. Thanks, Mike. Hello, Space Rocket History friends. It's time for our drawing. This episode's winner will get a choice of a Space Rocket History magnet, or two coasters, or two stickers, or two static clings, or two holographic stickers. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Peter Young. Peter Young, if you would email us, Mike, at spacerockethistory.com, to tell us your address and your prize preference, we'll get this out to you. Sincere thanks to all 336 of you who have contributed thus far in 2020. My sources for this episode were NASA, Two Sides of the Moon by David Scott, A Man on the Moon by Andrew Chaikin, To Rule the Night by Jim Irwin, Falling to Earth, An Apollo 15 Astronaut's Journey to the Moon by Al Warden, 
Flight by Chris Craft, Apollo 15 Flight Journal, Internet Archive, NBC News, and Wikipedia. That is all we have for episode number 339. I will try to have episode 340 posted by Thursday, June 4th. Stay healthy, everyone, and so long for now.